What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, emergency authorization from the FDA for doctors to treat COVID-19 with the blood of recovered patients. Former Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. Given the large data set that they had, it certainly met the standard for an emergency use authorization in that it may provide a benefit. It doesn't look like a home run, but right now we're looking for, you know, singles and doubles. And staying at home and streaming? Roku's chief financial officer, Steve Loudon, says his consumers streamed for more than 14 billion hours last quarter. We do think this is getting to the longer term trend that was well underway a bit faster. Plus, Joe and Andrew on TikTok, Trout, Movie Night, and, well, good advice. Don't come a-knockin', you know the saying, Andrew. It's Monday, August 24th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan. Becky's off today. Nice to see you, Joe. Just just the two of us. Good to see just you. Just the two of us. New Jersey's uh, a adopted a, I, son. I heard adopted a lot happen son. last week. A lot happened. I heard about it. I didn't watch much, so I can't, I, you know, probably can't talk about it as much because I, I don't uh, have uh, brilliant see, I, or anything uh, yeah, to say. Not that it would when be I'm on vacation, but. you know, I watch so much that, that I have very little time uh, to do anything else, uh, Andrew. No, so did you like the shore? Okay. Was it, uh, do you... You have a new viewpoint. We had, the kids a had. A, we won't spend. The kids had. A, the kids had a ball. We loved it. Jersey was great. The people of Jersey were great to us. The water, by the way, the water is. I mean, the ocean, beautiful. I would say drinking water in Jersey still uh, is probably my only complaint. Got to go either uh, Brita or bottled. That's my my one sort of comment on it. But you know, I've got this tattoo, which I know you guys had showed off last week, and. At some point, we'll have to show. I got a lot of neosporin on it right now. So just to keep it, you know, the bacterial, that's what they say you're supposed to do. You're supposed to keep the keep the keep the neosporin on it and whatnot. So. It was fun. Uh, it was fun. Anyway, I appreciate that. And, and yeah, I'm going to get one for, for you. I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to get one for you or I'm not sure. We got to talk about it. Anyway, the stock's went way up again. First up today on the podcast, Treating COVID-19. How close are we? New coronavirus cases in the U.S. continue to drift lower, staying below 50,000 for the ninth consecutive day. The Trump administration announced yesterday that the FDA has granted emergency authorization for the use of convalescent plasma to treat hospitalized COVID patients. The treatment uses blood from recovered virus patients who have built antibodies against it, and it's a technique that's been used by doctors for more than a century. In this authorization, the agency said the known and potential benefits of convalescent plasma outweigh the known and potential risks, like allergic reactions or the very small chance of passing on other infections. Here's President Trump speaking about it last night. This is a powerful therapy that transfuses very, very strong antibodies from the blood of recovered patients to help treat patients battling a current infection. 
Meanwhile, a new report in the Financial Times says that the White House is considering fast-tracking an experimental coronavirus vaccine developed by AstraZeneca and Oxford within the coming weeks. For guidance today, we turned to Dr. Scott Gottlieb, a member of the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. He is former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. In his latest Wall Street Journal op-ed, Gottlieb says studies are competing for too few patients, and it's time to direct resources toward the most promising therapies. Here's Joe. Do you agree last night with um, with what the president decided to do to the do the benefits? Do we know for sure that the possible net benefits outweigh the possible risks? Or and as an F, if you were still at the FDA, would would you would you be uh, in favor of this? Well, look, remember, this is an emergency use authorization in the setting of a public health emergency. So the standard isn't the typical standard of safe and effective as it is for new drug approval. It's for, the standard is that the drug or the therapeutic may provide a benefit in the setting of a public health emergency. I think on the basis of the data set that's available, it's reasonable to conclude that this may provide a benefit um, to patients who are suffering from COVID. And it's a very large data set. There certainly wasn't any indication that there were serious side effects associated with the use of plasma in these settings. And we have a lot of experience using convalescent plasma in the setting of viral infections. We've seen situations where it does provide a benefit. We've seen some situations where it doesn't. But I think in the setting of this public health emergency, given the large data set that they had, it certainly met the standard um, for an emergency use authorization and that it may provide a benefit. I think that this could be um, beneficial. It might be weakly beneficial. It doesn't look like a home run. Uh, but right now we're looking for, you know, singles and doubles. There aren't really going to be any home runs on the horizon until we can get the other therapeutic antibodies on the market and hopefully eventually vaccines and better therapeutics. All right. That makes sense. We'll see how it's received by the uh, uh, the intelligentsia. I'm not sure it's going to be well received uh, as we're going to see. Anyway, uh, hopefully it works and, and can help some people. The AstraZeneca Oxford University vaccine. Is that which one is that? Is that the adeno? Which one is that, Scott, that, that we're talking about here? That's right. It's a, it's, it's a viral vector vaccine. It's an adenoviral vector vaccine. All right. So we've done it before with other uh, diseases. We, we, kinda, we may know something about the safety of that vector to try to use as a vaccine. Would it make sense to you? to start using that before at the point that we're talking about that we just intimated where it might come a little bit earlier than, than big full-scale full scale phase three trials are finished? Uh, do you think it makes sense to do that? Look, I think you need to do careful research with these vaccines. There's two large trials underway in the U.S., one by Pfizer. I'm on the board of Pfizer, a 30,000 patient trial, another by Moderna, another 30,000 patient trial. These trials are enrolling very quickly. Um, I think what the Financial Times was reporting on is that there's a trial underway in the United Kingdom with that AstraZeneca vaccine involving 10,000 patients. That trial hasn't fully enrolled yet. I think it's about three quarters enrolled. But because it's a smaller trial, it could read out sooner than the large trials underway in the U.S. And so the question would become, would the United Kingdom license the vaccine on the basis of that trial or provide some kind of authorization? And then would the U.S. feel pressure to do the same, to follow the British uh, regulatory decision on the basis of a small data set involving only um, U.K. Uh, British uh, citizens and some citizens from other countries, but not an American trial? I think there's going to be some added complexity to this in that that vaccine initially started off as a single dose. 
And then they were finding that they weren't getting immunogenicity. They weren't getting a strong immune response with just a single dose. So they went towards a double dose like the U.S. vaccines are, like the Moderna vaccine. They're two different doses. And so that might further confound the ability to draw very clear conclusions from that trial. I'm not sure. But, um, but that's really the question that the FT was probing was, would there be pressure to license that vaccine on the basis of that smaller data set that might read out sooner in the United Kingdom? Do you have a, I mean, do you, at this point, does anyone, any scientist, is there any research to indicate that the different modes, whether it's mRNA or whether it's the AstraZeneca method or even some of the other methods that will one or the other will bear fruit or we're trying to get get them all, obviously, but is one more, I don't know, more tested, uh, we can trust the safety of it more than the unproven new therapeutic or uh, vaccines? It's, it's really hard to read across the different trials right now, the early data sets that you have, and try to make a determination which looks more robust um, on the basis of those data sets. They all look relatively safe. I think there was some initial hope that the adenoviral vector vaccines could be a one-dose vaccine and that they would elicit a T-cell response that would be greater than what you would see from the mRNA vaccines. But what we've seen, actually, is the adenoviral vector vaccines, at least the ones that are in development so far that are in advanced development, aren't going to be single-dose vaccines. The AstraZeneca vaccine is going to require two doses. And what we're seeing is the mRNA vaccines, the one by Pfizer and the one by Moderna, also elicited a T-cell response. And so the differentiation we thought we might see early on, we haven't seen. And so it's hard to say which vaccine might be more robust based on the very limited data sets that we have now. It's really going to require these large-scale trials to make those kinds of judgments. Hey, doctor, one of the, one of the things that you know so well is that there's a concern and worry that when, in fact, there is a, a genuine working vaccine that a lot of people may not uh, decide to take it, at least not initially, because they'd be worried about side effects or worse. Um, and because so many of these things are based on, or at least some of them are based on new technology, does it somehow create some kind of side effect later on? Within the medical community, what are the side effects right now that people are concerned about beyond the usual headaches and fevers and things that, that, that sometimes even, frankly, the flu vaccine can is, at least for me, he's given me over the years. Well, I think one of the theoretical concerns that you want to discharge is the question of whether or not the epitope used in the vaccine, so the spike protein, is in fact the protein that's eliciting some of these um, post-viral autoimmune types of phenomena that we're seeing with SARS-CoV-2, with, with actual COVID infection. Because we are seeing incidences of people, children, for example, who get multisystem inflammatory syndrome, and adults who develop different kinds of inflammatory syndromes that look autoimmune-like. And the question is, what's triggering that? Is it some, kind of, is it some protein in the, the virus itself? Is it some interaction between the virus and the human host? And so if it's the spike protein, if it's that epitope that's the common link between the disease and some of those phenomena, then there is at least a theoretical possibility that the vaccine, which contains that protein or elicits the production of that protein, could also trigger those side effects. And in fact, we see that, for example, with the flu vaccine, where flu itself causes certain post-viral syndromes like Guillain-Barre, and the vaccine can cause it as well because you have a common epitope. So that's at least a theoretical concern that you want to discharge. Um, And you'd need a large trial to do it. A 30,000-patient trial, which is what's underway in the U.S., should provide a sufficient data set to try to discharge that risk. And those risks usually become manifest, you know, weeks or maybe a month or two after you get the viral infection. So you should see them in a reasonably sized clinical trial with reasonable follow-up. All right, Dr. Gottlieb, 
Thank you. We'll, we'll end it there. We'll uh, see you later this week. Hopefully update the sort of the state of things and in the trouble spots. Uh, and I guess Europe, we need to revisit that uh, as well at some point. Anyway, uh, thank you. We'll see you later. Next on Squawk Pod, Roku CFO Steve Loudon on streaming while staying at home. We do view that COVID is accelerating this long-term shift to streaming. That helps the streaming industry. Roku as the leading streaming platform in the U.S. That has accelerated our active account growth. It's accelerated the streaming hours. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Dorkin along with Joe Curtin. Becky's off today. Movie yeah. theaters were closed during the pandemic. The shift to streaming accelerated. The average U.S. household watched 662 minutes of streamed content in July. That's up 92 percent from last year. But the increasingly crowded nature of the business has also led to some standoffs between streamers and platforms. Joining us right now to talk about all this is Steve Loudon. He's the chief financial officer of Roku. And there's so much to talk to you, uh, Steve, uh, about. And I want to get in just a second to some of the the clashes that have happened now uh, between some of the platforms and the streamers. But I think the one big question I'd have is, do you see this as a long-term accelerant, which is to say that a year from now in a post-vaccine world, we're going to be watching this much TV? Or do you think this is just a moment that somehow sort of pulled all of this forward into this remarkable and unique moment in time? I shouldn't say remarkable because upsetting and terrible uh, and, and for so many, obviously. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, it's good to be here. We, we do view that COVID is accelerating this long-term shift to streaming. And, uh, you know, that helps the streaming industry. Roku as the leading streaming platform in the U.S., um, you know, that has accelerated our uh, active account growth. It's accelerated the streaming hours. So we, we do think this is... Uh, you know, getting to the longer term trend that was well underway uh, a bit faster. And and let's just talk about, though, some of the battles over getting on some of these platforms, because these platforms have become very, very valuable. Um, You have lots of streamers all trying to get on them, some willing to pay, some maybe not willing to pay. Yeah, for Roku, uh, you know, we we aspire to have, uh, you know, relevant content for folks. You know, we have a great mix of free ad-supported content for folks. We also have subscription services, as well as uh, you were talking about, uh, you know, the transactional video on demand and direct-to-consumer releases. So we we have that as well. Um, So, yeah, we aspire to have, you know, the most diverse um, set of content for people to view, and they can pick um, on how they view it. The consumer, once they have access to the Roku platform, either via a Roku player or a TV that with the Roku operating system built in, they don't pay uh, the Roku platform directly to access content. And so there's a lot of choice on the platform and thousands of apps to choose from. Right. No, no. What, what, I, what I'm really suggesting is that the streamers themselves uh, obviously have to pay some percentage uh, in all of this. 
And my question to you is, at some point, do you think there's going to be an argument that a Roku could have too much power? And the reason I ask is right now there's a big debate whether someone like an Apple on their, on their own devices has too much power in terms of which apps are on their phones, which streamers are going to be on your platform, for example. Well, I think, yeah, Roku has, uh, is the leading uh, streaming TV platform in the U.S. Certainly, you know, there's a large TV ecosystem with content producers, advertisers, uh, retailers, and then the consumers, of course. Uh, you know, historically, we have, you know, taken a neutral position. And so, you know, really, we're, we're open to having all content on the platform. Um, you know, we've structured our, our revenue streams. Uh, with the content producers so that, uh, you know, when they do well on the platform, we have uh, sharing a portion of that. And I think the important thing to note on that front is that the the content producers that are leaning into Roku and leaning into streaming are, are winning in, in that. And Disney Plus is a great example. You know, they launched in Q4 and they've made tremendous growth. Um, you know, we're a, a strong partner with Disney. They've leveraged our audience development uh, capabilities right. to build up a strong Steve, base on Roku and elsewhere. Steve, t- tell us then where where do these negotiations stand with the likes of HBO Max, Peacock, owned by uh, our parent company? Those are, are those are, are clearly not on your platform right now. What's what's the problem? What are the fault lines in those t- in those discussions? Because clearly the platform, as you just described, is not neutral insofar as it's negotiating uh, on behalf of the company uh, with or against other streamers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we don't talk about any specific uh, dealer negotiations, but like I said, we do aspire to have all the content on the platform Um, because the consumer is not paying Roku. The economic model for Roku um, is related to these content distribution agreements on one side. um, And then advertising revenue um, is one of the other pieces of monetization for the platform that that is necessary for us to continue to invest in the business, both in terms of, developing great players and the TV operating system, as well as continue to innovate in the user experience. So as I mentioned, you know, our, our revenue uh, model is, is in the form of advertising as well as revenue shares when we sign up new subscribers or there's transactions on there. So, um, you know, certainly there's, uh, we have thousands of apps and, and a lot of times these apps are either on the platform or renewed without anybody uh, really noticing. And occasionally we do get um, some sticking points, but, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get through those. Okay. Uh, Steve, we really appreciate you joining us. Hope we can continue this conversation. Uh, watching your growth has been a remarkable thing. And uh, there's so many different issues uh, in the space that you're living in right now. Uh, look forward to talking to you again soon, Steve. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen. A record-setting uh, auction uh, this weekend, an autographed Mike Trout rookie card sold for nearly $4 million. The card tops a previous record of just over $3.1 million, paid for a 1909 Honus Wagner card in 2016, which I was uh, referencing. It was previously purchased uh, two years ago on eBay for $400,000 by a Las Vegas uh, sports betting uh, consultant. I don't think the Honus Wagner card, I don't know for sure. I don't think it's autographed. That makes it a little bit different uh, that it's actually uh, autographed by, uh, I guess, Mike Trout. But uh, that's a lot to pay for a baseball card, that's for sure. You don't want to lose that uh, flipping card. Did you? I used to flip them when I was a kid. It was a big deal. Uh, and are the ones that yep. I didn't use in my bike with, with, the, with the clothespin to, to make the... Yep. 
and I, I, I've told this story a million times. I can't, I, that's when I realized I, I gamble a little now just with, with not much money. But back then, I lost almost all my cards one time. I lost Pete Rose. I lost Johnny Bench. I lost all, all my reds. And I, I came right. home, you know, and I tried to win them back, and I lost my. I came home. I was crying. I was devastated. I was devastated. And I realized, you know, this greed that you feel for gambling to get more, it can really, it can bite the other way. I need to lay down on a couch and actually tell you about, about that. Let's do that after the show, maybe, Andrew, if you could call me. I'm going to lay down here, and because and, uh, to this day, I remember that. I, I, I collected cards, too, but I collected basketball cards. And I, my prize, and I still have it in my parents' house, in Lucite, is a Michael Jordan rookie card. It's in Lucite, Fleer, 1986, mint condition. So that's my, my, my the only thing I got that's going. That's worth something. I, I think, I think that's, it's worth that, something. That is probably I hope. worth something. I haven't gone to... Uh, there's, there's a, there was a magazine, Beckett was the magazine that would tell you all of the different pricing for everything. And we go, we trade and we go to the card shows and do all that kind of stuff back in the day. But so. You never flipped them. You never flipped them? Did you ever flip them to see how to I was an investor. Win? I actually made a terrible investment, Joe. I bought a case of Fleer Ultra baseball cards. First year, I believe it was 1990 or 1991, still also in my parents' basement. I think that I could get more money for selling the cardboard that they were printed on than the actual cards themselves. It was a terrible investment. So, no, I was, I was, yeah, I was trying to make, make a buck back then. Yeah, shocker. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Facebook versus TikTok, let's go to the movies and the stories that got us talking today. I did want to wish you a happy Waffle Day. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. The Wall Street Journal reporting this morning that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg raised a red flag himself about TikTok in meetings in Washington when he was there last fall. The report says that Zuckerberg made the case to President Trump at a private dinner that the rise of the Chinese Internet companies threatened American business and should be a bigger concern than reigning in Facebook. The report also said Zuckerberg warned several lawmakers about TikTok, including Senator Tom Cotton, later demanded an inquiry into the app. So now a lot of finger pointing in the social media world at Mark Zuckerberg, who uh, the argument is being made was using it to deflect some of the attention uh, that was uh, being placed on Facebook. And if you remember, even publicly last year, one of the things that Mark Zuckerberg said over and over again was, you know, you got to think about these large companies in China. That's that's the real issue. We're trying to compete with them. And so this news does make 
uh, a little bit of sense. But by the way, there's folks on TikTok. I don't know if you saw this, Joe. There's folks on TikTok last night when the report broke that are going crazy now at Mark Zuckerberg because, of course, they love their TikTok and they now have till September 15th to either uh, make a deal with Microsoft or maybe now Oracle. And uh, we'll see. And if not, uh, well, we'll see if it all goes away otherwise. So I understand how businesses work and we are competing with businesses in China. So I understand the competitive yep. uh, aspects of totally. why Mark Zuckerberg would have this opinion. But is there a part of it where he's a patriot and just saying, look, they don't do business like us. They, they don't, you know, they don't have certain values uh, that we have. And, and I mean, I, I, is it 90, 10? Maybe it's 90 competition, 10 percent. He re- truly believes that this is not a, you know, a, an upstanding, uh, you know, that, that freedom may not be the, the top right. thing on on uh, TikTok's mind. At time. Is it possible or do we just cynically right. say he's he's protecting? No, putting I think a it's, up I think it's all business. of a piece. No, I think it's I think you're right, Joe. I think, look, nothing's black and white. It's always part of a spectrum. And I'm sure there's some part of him that that genuinely has uh, real issues with with the security problems in China, I think, as we all do, I think, or so many people do, I should argue. But at the same time, I think there's probably an element of the the competition. He's a competitive guy. So I could see it being both. I should note, by the way, later today, possibly actually while we're on the air, Joe, uh, TikTok filing a lawsuit. The expectation is against the United States government. Uh, for the steps that it's taken. So we'll be looking for that as well. We have news to report today that we uh, haven't brought you since March. Box office numbers. Theater chains, including Cinemark, Regal, and AMC, reopened their doors with a new Hollywood movie over the weekend. Unhinged, starring Russell Crowe, brought in an estimated $4 million. It's being considered a success, as only 12 of the top 28 markets allowed theaters to open. One interesting note, the top five locations for the movie were all drive-ins, Back to the Future, uh, in areas that haven't allowed theaters to reopen. Four in California, one in Dearborn, uh, Michigan. Uh, been years. It's been years. I, I have very fond memories of uh, And I don't think you need that. I don't know if you ever had the big clunky things that if you forgot to, you know, if you got to put it back on when you drove away, you'd, you'd go home with it. Those big clunky thing with the horrible, wasn't even yep. stereo. You remember that? I think you can do, you can do it a lot better now. We've come a long now way. Now I think in, they, in they, you can either now they beam it to the to your radio right in the car. You you go to a, a channel on your I radio. Think they in do the car. that. Do yeah. you still have that? Unless they do it by Bluetooth now. They, I, I haven't been to one of these yet, but that would be I guess the next modern version. I so, haven't you know. yet. And you you I don't know how you get. I guess you'd go in with the mask for the popcorn or something if you want to go into the little the little place. Uh, and I think you sit in front of the car, maybe with the kids, maybe, but just keep the social distance. Is that how it works? Right. I think it works that way. And you I, know, I'm, I haven't, I have not been in forever. The place we went to, I thought, I, this is many years ago. There was a person who came around, almost like the old A and W root beer stands. They'd come around with the popcorn to each to each car as they like on a on a trolley. Nice. But who knows? Nice. Oh, good old drivings. Anyway. Don't come a knocking. You know the saying, uh, Andrew. I did want to wish you uh, a happy Waffle Day, uh, Andrew. I don't know whether you uh, is today you're, Waffle you're Day, to that, but this was today's National today's Waffle Day. Today's Waffle but, Day. Um, today is Waffle Day in Sweden, Norway, wow. and Denmark. It's on March 25th. It's been for for years and years over there, but in this country, it has to do with when we the waffle iron was patented. But I don't think you can get a free waffle. At the Waffle House. I don't. I'm not sure. But you know where you can get one, I, I'm told, is uh, 
is IHOP, which is kind of weird. International House of Pancakes, free waffles, I don't know. And that's Squawk Pod for today. On our rundown tomorrow, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt on the future of work, big tech, and much more. You don't want to miss it. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.